Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. The world's attention is riveted on Ukraine, and our own Congressman David Cicilline recently had a firsthand look at the rising tensions during a visit in January. We'll talk about what he learned there and about some issues closer to home, like the midterm elections and who will replace his colleague, Congressman Jim Langevin. That's after this quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Joining us today is Representative David Cicilline, a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee who recently traveled to Ukraine. Congressman, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. The world is watching the volatile situation in Ukraine, and I see you just returned from a trip there in late January. Who did you meet with and what did you learn there? So uh, we met with the foreign minister, the defense minister, the director of intelligence, and of course with President Zelensky. And the purpose of the trip really was to reaffirm American support for the Ukrainian people and for their emerging democracy. And uh, it was a bipartisan delegation, and we wanted to be clear that America uh, stood together in the support of the Ukrainian people. And we joked about it a little bit in the trip and said, you know, Vladimir Putin has, he's brought together the European Union, NATO allies, and even, you know, Republicans and Democrats in Congress, something that no one could, uh, would have thought he could do. So how would you describe what it's like to be living in Ukraine right now? Well, you know, I was in Ukraine uh, right after the uprising in the Maidan. And, you know, this is eight years later. And it's uh, it's a country that is making tremendous progress on electoral reform and responding to corruption and the rule of law. So they're doing a lot of good work. They're they're incredibly committed to their country. They are, you know, we met so many Ukrainians who said, we are you know, not going back to be part of the Soviet Union. We are not part of Russia. We are Ukrainian. We're gonna fight for our country. They're very proud. They're, you know, they are prepared uh, to stand up and, and, and you know, risk their lives to protect their democracy. So you know, they've made tremendous progress. They still have a lot of work to do, uh, but it's a very thriving and, and, and strong democracy. And I think it's actually what's the biggest threat to Vladimir Putin is you know, right on his border, is Ukraine. And, you know, Russians who have both cultural and 
the linguistic ties with Ukraine, they look over and, and they think, you know, why can't we have those freedoms? Why can't we enjoy the kind of life that Ukrainians do? That's the greatest threat to the dictator, thug, Vladimir Putin. And so he doesn't want a prosperous, stable democracy on his border. It's really about the threat that Ukraine poses because of its success as a democracy. We're taping this on Friday, February 18th, so certainly there could be new developments before it airs, but uh, do you expect Russia to invade? You know, I, don't, I think anyone who has a firm conviction of what they think Vladimir Putin will ultimately decide, because it really is his decision, um, I think is mistaken. I think no one really knows that. Our goal is to make it very clear to him that the costs of an invasion, or a further invasion, I should say, uh, will be so great that he will decide on balance it's not worth doing. Uh, on the other hand, I think his interest is to destabilize Ukraine. And so he may, in, you know, have some military engagement for a short period of time into part of the country just to cause, you know, some instability. But uh, hopefully he realizes that will be met with strong international action that will really devastate Russia. Yeah, I've read some articles about why is Putin doing this? I mean, what do you think? Is he acting rationally or, you know, some are suggesting he's become paranoid and reckless? What do you what do you see as his motivation? I mean, there have been whole books written about the psychology of Vladimir Putin. But I think the one thing we know is he has this notion of rebuilding the Soviet Union. And Ukraine is a critical part of that plan. It's a very important uh, part of what used to be the USSR. I think he also is really threatened by, as I said, this vibrant democracy on his border. But he also has to do something to distract his own uh, people from the really horrible conditions in Russia. It's a very, the economy there is in very rough shape. It's a very difficult, very repressive country. And so if he can distract, you know, his, you know, the people in his own country with some other, you know, foreign action as a way to distract them from the kind of misery of their own lives, it's useful to him politically. And if he can destabilize Ukraine so that it doesn't look like such a great alternative to Russia, that's helpful to him. Um, but, you know, I think he underestimated the unity of the country. And this is where I give President Biden tremendous kudos. He really has helped lead the development of an international coalition, everyone united together, speaking with one voice that we're going to defend the right of Ukrainian people to decide their own future. And the notion of one country redrawing the lines of another country by force is something that we fought two world wars to you know, end and has brought peace and stability to Europe. And we're not going to allow a thuggish dictator to undo that. And I think um, that message has been made very clear. And if Russia does invade, what could the United States do to punish them? Well, we can lead the effort to impose the crushing sanctions that are already being developed that will essentially shut down the Russian economy and cause tremendous harm to the oligarchs that, you know, Putin cares most about. Uh, so we can do that. And that, that's going to make a big difference. We can continue to provide assistance to the Ukrainians so they can defend themselves, both in armaments, ammunition, training. And I know our European allies are doing the same. Switching to another topic, New York Representative Kathleen Rice just announced she won't seek re-election, and that makes the 30th House, House Democrat to head for the exit ahead of what's expected to be a difficult midterm election. Why are so many of your Democratic colleagues leaving? Uh, you know, I think for a lot of folks, it has been, you know, a difficult time to be in Congress, particularly members who are, you know, in very competitive districts. Some of them have talked about threats to their families, threats to 
uh, them, you know, uh, because of positions they've taken. So that that can have an effect on you. These are not easy times. Um, You know, I also think despite the work we've done, people are living with very high inflation and high gas prices and feeling and understandably really upset about that. And we're working, and I know the president is, to address those issues. But I think, you know, this is a tough time. We've been through a difficult public health crisis for the last two years. And I think people who serve in public office make tremendous sacrifices doing this work. And I'm always, you know, in awe of people who are are doing it. And when they decide it's time to do something else, I respect that. Were you surprised that your fellow Rhode Island Congressman Jim Langevin decided not to run this year? I was a little bit, to be frank. Um, I have the privilege of watching Jim Langevin work every day. And I know what it takes uh, for a person who um, has the, a disability that he has and how extraordinary his work has been despite that. But it requires a lot, you know, getting up very early, getting ready for work in a way that most of us can't imagine. So traveling back and forth. So it does, you know, when I realized that he had done it for 22 years, you know, that's an extraordinary length of service to our state and to our country. Um, and I'll miss working with him. He's been a great friend to me, a great colleague. Um, but, you know, 22 years is a long time, so it's not hard to understand that he's ready to do something different. So who are you supporting in the Democratic primary to replace him? I am enthusiastically supporting the Democratic nominee, whoever <laughs> wins that Democratic primary. Uh, I thought you were going to use this moment to announce your support. <laughs> <Yeah>. do, <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> do, do, well, let me ask you, did you urge Seth Magazina to run for the CD2C instead of for governor? Yeah, I, I'm, I've never made it a practice to ur- urge people to run for any office. I think it's a big mistake. I always tell people who seek my advice the same thing. You should run for an office if you believe you can make a difference in people's lives and and you want to do that job. Like, I think the big mistake people make is trying to talk people into offices. Like, running for office is hard and campaigning is hard. You should only do it, in my view, for an office that you really want and for an office that you believe you can make a real difference. And so... I am lucky because I know all the candidates who are running, I think, will be well represented by whoever wins the Democratic primary. Republicans like former Cranston Mayor Alan Funga bound to argue in the months ahead that Rhode Island would benefit from having a member of the Republican Party if they're in the majority in the House next year. What do you say to that? Um, Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, Rhode Islanders would not benefit uh, from giving uh, Kevin McCarthy one more vote in the House of Representatives. The first vote that Alan Fung would cast if he were the Republican nominee or any of the Republicans would cast is to make Kevin McCarthy Speaker of the House. Now, I would remind you that when we put forth the American Rescue Plan, which provided, you know, millions of dollars, you know, almost two and a half or almost $3 billion to Rhode Island to help small businesses, to help working families, to uh, provide childcare, to provide universal pre-K, to provide help to the, for our schools to reopen safely, rental and homeowner assistance, all those things that helped everyone get through the pandemic, every Republican voted against the American Rescue Plan. They voted against helping small business, helping homeowners, helping states and local police departments meet their needs. So, you know, when people say, does it matter if it's a Republican or Democrat? What matters is that you have someone in Washington fighting for Rhode Island values and fighting for things that matter to Rhode Islanders. Um, And so what we don't need is another person in Washington that's adding to the Republican Party, which is the party of QAnon, of Marjorie Taylor Greene, of the January 6th insurrection. I have full confidence that Rhode Islanders know the difference in Washington between Republicans and Democrats, even if they like Alan Fung and think he's a nice guy. That's not the point. The point is, do you want someone in Washington who's going to give this 
party of chaos and corruption and, and insurrection more power and, and make, help make Kevin McCarthy the next Speaker of the House. And finally, if you're going to vote in the presidential election and you elect Kevin McCarthy Speaker of the House, you can have no confidence that he will certify the election results. Now, if you had said that five years ago, I'd say, Ed, you're crazy. But we don't have to wonder because we've watched it. He refused to certify the election results of states in which Donald Trump lost fair and square. You know, some say it's time for a woman to represent Rhode Island. What do you what do you say to that? Look, that's a decision uh, that the voters of the second congressional district will make. I think it's really important that we have uh, women in public office. I've done a lot of work to support women candidates. Um, and so I think, you know, it's very important that we have diversity in representation in the Congress. I'm proud to say we have the most diverse Congress in the history of America. That is women, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community. But the decision about, you know, who should win the Democratic primary in this case, obviously is going to be up to the voters of the second congressional district. Also, observers say a Republican stands a chance of winning in CD2, in part because gerrymandering helped you win re-election 10 years ago, but made CD2 more conservative. Do you, do you regret that now? No, I don't actually think that's true. Look, um, CD2 is a Democratic district. Jim Langevin won that last, that last election by 17 points. Uh, he outperformed Joe Biden only by two points. Joe Biden won by 15 points. That's a Democratic district. I know the Republicans want to create this mythology that somehow it's a Republican district because some of these cities and towns voted for Donald Trump. But that's a Democratic district. Donald Trump will not be on the ballot and you have great Democratic candidates. Finally, I want to get your thoughts on the departure of your long-term advisor and communications director, Rich Lucchetti. The Globe had a story about how the January 6th attack at the Capitol solidified his decision to leave politics. What does his decision tell you? And what do you, what do you make of the people who are still telling Rich that the rioters were just a bunch of tourists? Yeah, I mean, it made, it made me sad. I mean, Rich Lucchetti was a really valued member of my team and a terrific communications director. Um, but he was not alone in being, you know, this is a workplace for, for, for folks. It's not just, you know, for members of Congress, but it's people who staff and particularly people who work on the House floor. They saw this violent attack on their workplace. And, you know, this is an attack where five people died. Dozens of heroic members of law enforcement were beaten and injured. And, you know, to have colleagues still say like, oh, this was just a normal day of tourists or to have the ex-president, the former president say, I want to pardon all these people. And then to have the Republican National Party, by the way, the party of Alan Fung, say this was legitimate political discourse. This was a violent attack on our democracy that resulted in people dying. And it was an effort to stop the counting of the Electoral College. And, you know, it makes me sad that young people who came to work for Congress because they believe in American democracy and they know they can make a difference are being, you know, dissuaded from doing that because they don't feel safe in their work environment. Rich Lucchetti is not the only one. And that's a terrible thing. It's a terrible loss for the country. It was a terrible loss for my office. And, you know, young people should know that they can come to the nation's capital and be part of their government and feel safe and not feel that they're in any danger. And um, it's inexcusable. And speaking of Rich, I know he's a huge Bills fan. So did you offer condolences when the Bills lost to the Chiefs or, or did you rub it in? Uh, I would say I rubbed it in as hard as I could. And I was, <laughs> yes, I was, it was borderline cruel what I did, actually. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, Congressman Cicilline, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Here are some more things to explore from Globe, Rhode Island. My colleague Alexa Gigas has an Ocean State Innovators Q&A about Roots to Empower, a Pawtucket-based nonprofit that provides agricultural job training to formerly incarcerated people. And if you're looking for fun activities this weekend, read the 401, Lauren Daly's column on the coolest things to do in Rhode Island right now. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Rhode Island Report. It's the best way to make sure you get the podcast as soon as it's out. Find all of this and more at globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. As we interview all of the candidates for governor this year, we want your questions. What would you ask them? Email your ideas to rinews at globe.com. You might hear your question on the podcast. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.